0: I've often told you I was raised in Cleveland, Ohio, kind of an upscale suburb. After I lived there a while, I went to school in Chicago, big city. So you could say I understand city life pretty well. I got married to my wife, and after a year, we moved here to Kent City (laughs) in this small town. And honestly, I realized that things are run a whole lot different in a small town than they are a big city. I mean, a lot different. So one of my first things to do is to get some inside sources to figure out what's going on and how to maneuver. I want to be a good pastor, so I want to figure out who's in charge because they're the ones I have to go after if I have to get anything done. And so what I did is I called them my Kent City Deep Throats. You know, we meet down in Grand Rapids underneath the parking garage and they tell me all the secrets and sometimes the back alleyways. And I have one question that is always intriguing. Here's the question that my anonymous sources answered for me. My question was, who runs the town? Who runs the small town? And the answer is very shocking. It's quite shocking. Everything that happens in this town, and towns like it, small towns, with regards to school, politics, even who's going to play on the team is determined by the mothers of the (laughs) town. Mama Bear is in charge. She really is. It's not the gray-haired old guys that go to the corner restaurant and drink coffee thinking they're solving the problems of the world. It just stays. It's not even the coaches that scream and yell on the sideline. It's Mom. She's in charge. And she runs the small town. If their dear, sweet, innocent son or beautiful blonde-haired daughter is not starting on the school team, mom's going to let the coaches know very loudly. If their exceptionally hardworking student gets in trouble at a weekend drinking party or is caught cheating on a test and the teacher threatens them that they're going to miss a sport event or a dance, Mom schedules a meeting with the principals and has a what-for meeting, you know, where she says, you know, this is not my dear child's fault. And may I say, would you like to keep your job? And they give you that look like that. It's the mom who, um, at senior night at the high school, who knows how to get all the scholarship money for their kids. They have the ins and outs of who do I talk to to get more money to get the goods for my child. And when I was youth pastor, most of my meetings were with mom, most of them. When she'd come into my office, knock and say, Pastor, we need more activities for my child. My dear, sweet, godly child is not that excited about youth group. If you just had a few more things going on, if you let them sing in the youth youth worship team, if you could just protect them for some of the meaner kids, they might like youth group more and the church more. Can you do this for me? Could you fix it? Because if you don't, there's a lot more churches in the area that we can go to, and then they put peach lipstick on their face and smile and wink and eat. Oh, mom has the power in town. That's how it goes. Precisely because mom loves her dear, sweet, vulnerable children. She wants them to have the very best so they can be the best. I mean, who doesn't love their children? And do you know how you can tell if your children's the best? They're better than all those other rotten kids. You know what I mean? They're the best. It's just love. And did you know it's always been that way? Turn to Matthew 20, because we're going to see a mom that is just like the moms in Penn City. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. And the title of this is just a mother's request, a sweet mother's request. I'd say the subtitle is How Does Jesus Define Success? That's really what we're going to talk about. Starting in verse 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, which is James and John, came up to Jesus with her sons, kneeling before him. She asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you uh, do not know what you're asked. Are you able to drink the cup that I have to drink? They, meaning James and John, said to him, we are able? Sure, yeah, we can do it. Kind of. That's probably what they said. He said to them, you will drink my cup but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them? It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you remember, from Mother's Day, we preached on verse 28. But this is a very interesting story. So let me give you context. The context is that Jesus is rounding the end of his public ministry. And for the last two years... Previous to this conversation, he became the talk of Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee. I mean, he is the most popular person in the country. And he's nearing Jerusalem. So they're from Jericho and they're going up to Jerusalem because he's getting ready to die. That's where we're at in the book of Matthew. It is the march to the cross. By this time, the disciples also have seen him work wonders. He's healed lepers, the lame, he calmed the storm. And they know, they know, this is the Son of God. They're sure. So they also know they have hitched their wagon to the right star. He is the Messiah. He's God's chosen king. So you know they had to be excited, especially after listening to chapter 19, verse 28. Look what chapter 19, verse 28 says. I mean, this is only one chapter before Listen to what Jesus said. He says to them, and those of the disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, meaning the disciples, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I was one of the disciples, and I just heard that man, I'd be licking my lips and cracking my fingers and go, man, I'm going to get it. I'm going to be the top dog. I'd let everybody know, especially my mom. I'd call her right away. I would. I would say, hey, mom, you won't believe what Jesus just said. You won't believe it. You don't have to worry about me anymore. I know I'm a hothead. I know John and I get mad all the time. And I know growing up, you're really worried about Would we make anything of ourselves? But let me tell you, Jesus just promised that we would would rule on the thrones with him. And their mom, who met Jesus, often she would follow them, probably would say that was the sweetest news she's ever heard in her life. I have dreams for my kids. I know my dear wife has amazing dreams for her sons. Dreams with it. She rubs her fingers together and says, man, if only. I call that having visions of grandeur. Every mom has visions of grandeur for their kids. It starts from the moment they are born. Moms look at that kid and say, I know God has made them for a great purpose. They're going to be important. They're going to be somebody. Every mom knows how that feels. So James and John and their mom are... They're flying high at this point. The way you can tell they're flying high is they completely missed verses 17 through 19 right before verse 20. Look what verse 17 and 19 say. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they're going to be condemned to death. He's going to be condemned to death. They, they kind of miss that. And then verse 16, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. They miss that too. And he will be raised in the third day. And then verse 20 begins. It's as if they were so caught up in what they heard in chapter 19, verses 17, 18, 19 made no sense to them. This did not fit well into their visions of grandeur. I think it happens with all of us. We tell ourselves many times, man, I've been following the king. When you follow the king, I know, I know the king is going to give me my best life now. I know it. I know it. And so this vision of grandeur that I'm going to be somebody chokes out everything else. Listen to their dear. We comment in verse 20 and just kind of imagine. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with their son, her sons, and kneeling before him, so it's an act of, really an act of obedience or worship, I think it's a little bit manipulative, she kneels before Jesus and she said, can, can you uh, do something for my son? I just have a little request, that's all, and Jesus says, well what is it? She said to him, here's the word in the ESV says, say. It just means promise me. kind of. Can you just do this for me? It's, it's just a little, a little request. Yeah, what is it? Can you make sure my son sit on your right hand and left when you rule the world? Is that okay? Just kind of give him the world too. It's just a small little request. Oh, they're nice boys. Every mom's just like that. They pray just like that. We all pray just like that. We pray like this Dear Jesus, my wonderful Lord, who can do anything? Nothing's impossible for you, Jesus. I just have a request. Can you just give me everything I want? That's all I'm asking. Visions of glory. I want to be somebody. As the popular Christian saying goes, if you aren't praying for things beyond your reach, your God isn't big enough, right? Well, this is where. I kind of want to compare two worldviews. And I think it's, I don't think it's wrong to want success for your child. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's wrong to ask for things from God. I think where she gets it wrong, and where most of us get it wrong, isn't wanting success. It's how we define success. It's what we think is really the pinnacle of living. And what I'm going to call this vision's a grandeur, there's three S's to worldly success. And the first is safety and security. This is where the vision starts. The base. Parents want their children never have to worry about not having or doing without. To not have to scrape by. Not having to face the troubles and danger that I had to when I was younger younger adult. That's why we live in this era called the helicopter helicopter parenting, where they hover and they protect. And the parents make all the plans for the child so they'll be okay. Because we don't want them to hurt. If I hurt it once, I've hurt it a million times. I don't want my child to ever struggle and suffer the ways I had to struggle and suffer. Even when it comes to salvation, many parents have so isolated and protected their children from temptation because they just don't want their children to be hurt like they were or fail like they did when they were young adults. I mean, it makes sense. Makes sense. Which leads to the next one, which is satisfaction. We just just want our kids to be happy. That's the next stage after safety. I just want my kid to have a great life. Meaning, I want them to have it all. I want my kids and grandkids to have the very best of things. I don't mind suffering just a little so my kids can have more than I did when I was their age. I remember when I, my wife and I were first married. I told her, I warned her, said so if you marry me, you're not going to be rich. I'm just telling you. And I came through on my promise. Our first year, <laughs> we ate macaroni and cheese, Hot dogs for dinner and ramen noodles for appetite. That's what we ate all the time. All the time. But God forbid if my children ever have to eat like that. <coughs> we want the best, which leads ultimately to significance. The final stage is greatness. I want my children to have a position of title and power because I really believe my kids are just better. And if I don't believe in them, Who will? I think one of the hardest moments for parents in life is when your child fails. Or when they are not going to pursue the dreams you have for them. Or they just don't care. For the mother of James and John, she wanted nothing less than for them to sit on the thrones of Jesus' right and left hand. She wanted them to be better. And being a ruler over everyone. So they could be the very best. Isn't that what every parent should want? The world thinks so. And it sure seems like the other disciples thought so. Look at verse 24. They're mad. I mean, they're mad. The, it says here, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant. That means they were boiling with anger. Why? Because they wanted it too. They heard what their mom was asking. Where she was kind of kneeling before Jesus. and Oh, isn't that nice? How tight as she is. Jesus, did my two What is she asking? Oh, they're mad. Because I want that throne too. Don't we all? This desire to be the best infiltrates everything. If you go to a high school reunion, you start comparing. So what do you do with your life? Oh, <laughs> too bad. Doing a little better. Or, you know, when when you talk to parents of kids whose kids just graduated and they tell you how rich souring you're going to be? Or your son is on the church softball league and he's still hitting dingers over the fence. My boy. But I want want you to take careful notice. Really, this is where it gets tricky. Jesus is not happy about this. He's not happy about how quickly his own disciples are, are viewing success and letting the world dictate it to them. Look at verse 25, Jesus called to them, gathered them around, and he goes, listen, listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, so he's pointing to the way of life the world is living, this is the way the world lives. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over everybody else, they want to be in charge, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And then he says, verse 26, but not so with you. If you're his disciples, not so with you. Ow, oh, these are hard words. It's like, what about? Uh, ouch! Ow! 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 That hurts me. I'm not supposed to want the world for my son. Jesus says, No. Stop competing, stop comparing, and just follow me. That's all I want. That's all I want for your kids. What exactly does Jesus want? Well, this is where we are going to ask all moms in here, tighten your seatbelts and hold tightly to your Bibles. It's going to be a bad ride. (laughs) I mean, especially if you love your kids. It's going to be a really bad ride. And I was listening to this man. I don't know if I want this for my kids. So look at how he begins in verse 22. Verse 22. He asks a question. Um, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What is he talking about? They're talking about thrones when he's talking about drinking a cup. What is this cup? Can you drink the cup? Maybe the James and John are going, huh, what is he talking about? Maybe he's talking about any, remember back in Nehemiah's time, you would have the king and you would have the cup bearer, he'd sit on the Right hand of the king, and they, before the king would drink the wine, and get the cupbearer to drink it to see if there's poison. If there's not, the king can live. And if there was, the guy would die, they'd put another guy in. <laughs> these, guys, these guys are probably thinking maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. But you know what? Oh, that's not a big deal. If I get poisoned, Jesus can heal me he heal lepers. So, yeah, hey, yeah, I can drink it. Maybe the cup is Psalm 23. My cup runneth over, or Psalm 16. There's pleasures at your right hand forevermore. Now I can drink that cup. But do you know the Bible talks about one other cup? It's one other possibility. You find it in Ezekiel, but Jeremiah is really explicit about it. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, The God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, And make all the nations whom I send you to drink it. It's the cup of punishment for sin. Suffering for people's rebellion. The cup of his wrath is not quite like your mother's vision of grandeur at all. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. The implication of this is, if Jesus drinks it, his disciples are going to taste it a little bit too. He'd often say, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. That's the point of this. That is the end goal for all disciples. And the best way, I would say, what is the end goal? Instead of vision of grandeur, he wants you to be conformed to his image. Conformity in Christ to Christ is the opposite of vision of grandeur. <laughs> Listen to Romans 8, 28, 29. Most of us know 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I get it. Then verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Again, if he drinks it, I must drink it because I'm his disciple. He did not skip the valley to get to the mountaintop. He went through the valley. Why do I think I get to leapfrog just to the mountaintop? I do, if I'm going to follow him, also have to go through valleys to get to the top. So the definition of conformity to me, the best way to think about it, is the sculpting process of God that turns a sinner into a saint, a failure into a person Who will one day display the glory of the immortal God. So when God chooses a man or woman to be his. He'll begin a process of chipping. It's like chipping stone. Tink. Tink. And off will fall that stone that isn't needed. That actually mars the whole image. And every tink. Tink. Hurts. Just like a sculpture chisels off the stone to bring up the image he is producing, he uses suffering and trials to do that. He uses servanthood to do that. He uses slavery to do that. These are the three S's of conformity. The first one suffering. The fellowship of is suffering. And I have to be honest with you, I hate this word. I hate it. But when Jesus talks about drinking the cup, he is referring to suffering and the sacrifice which he had to do to rid the world of sin, and those who follow him are going to be asked to follow in his steps. This is the complete opposite of grandeur. Complete opposite. In this case, Jesus continues the conversation in verse 23. Listen to what he says. Verse 23. He says, You will drink, he's talking to James and John, you will drink my cup. You will Certain. In fact, James, one of the disciples, was the first disciple martyr. In the book of Acts, which is not far from this portion of scripture, Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa, who is the son of Herod the Great, was upset with the disciples, took a sword, and beheaded James. Beheaded him. His brother John, you might know who John is, John wrote, Revelation, where he was stuck on the island of Patmos. They figured he died on that island in exile at the age of 98. His tradition says he was he was persecuted. He was actually boiled in oil one time for his faith in Christ. Every other disciple, traditionally, historically speaking, was martyred, all except for Judas, who hung himself because he betrayed Jesus. But every other Every other disciple was martyred. And Peter, the most famous of all, was to be crucified in Rome, but because he didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified like Jesus asked to be hung upside down on a cross that looked like an X. It's called Peter's cross. Why would God allow those who are his, especially his disciples, to suffer and go through persecution for their faith, conforming being made like Jesus. There's really no other way to gain maturity in the depth of soul. Look at 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1, 6 and 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7. It's toward the end of the New Testament, right after James. Chapter 1. So verse 6 is talking about the salvation that's waiting for us. Like it's waiting for us in heaven. And then verse 6 says... In this salvation that's waiting for us, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials of suffering. Why? Verse 7 So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The NIV even says, so it may be found genuine. So your faith may be found genuine. So in other words, Peter is saying, some of you are going to go through trials, difficulties, so your hypocrisy will be chipped away. It chips off the worldly what I would say, the worldly disease of banal living, of living for frivolous things, and suffering says there's got to be something more than this. It makes you deeper, it makes you whole. I like how Peter Marshall, the chaplain of the U.S. Senate, once said, when we eventually reach the goal which we are striving, which is heaven, when we eventually reach the goal for which we're striving, God will look us over. Not for diplomas, Not for medals, but for scars. In my opinion, fellowship with great suffering is not something, honestly, I I enthusiastically like to preach about. Because it sounds kind of fake. I've known the suffering that's been going on. And often, truthfully, I don't think God allows us to see what he's working on in other people's souls. He works each of us over in different ways. Only he really knows. Look at verse 23 uh, again. So he says, You will drink my cup. And then he says this very fascinating. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. So Jesus is saying it's not, I don't really know who's going to sit at my right and left. Because he says, uh, it's been prepared already by my Father. He knows who's going to sit there. And, you know, you think about it, who do you think is going to sit at Jesus' right and left hand? I think when we see the person sitting next to Jesus on either side, it's probably going to be somebody you've never heard of. It's probably somebody who suffered a lot and rejoiced. It's very interesting, Romans eight seventeen. there's a hint that if I'm going to reign with him, it says, I'm going to suffer with him, as if suffering... Correlates to my power in reigning with them. So when Jesus wants you, he invites you to places only he knows you need to go. He then gives you the grace to endure it. And when you come out on the other side, you are a completely different person. You are a deeper person, and you begin to look like Christ. <coughs> That's stage one of conformity. Stage two is servant. Look at verse 26. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, so you want to be great, must be your servant. Serve. This is where we get the word deacon. Deacon means servant. Service is doing things for the other, to build them up for their good. You don't do things to bless yourself. You do things to help others. I'll show you a very simple way. Go to Ephesians, so Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 29. I think this is so easy, but listen to how we can serve each other. And if we, if we took this verse seriously, I think it would change your house. It would change your business, change your marriage, change your life. Here's what it says, Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who fear. So this little teeny tongue, which can light the world on fire, Paul says, control it for the other person. Build them up. Exalt them with your tongue. You know, and encourage them, empathize with them. Don't grumble, complain, argue, boast, demand, challenge. Use your tongue to serve. Jesus wants us to build others up, to treat them better than ourselves, to not grab positions of privilege, and to serve. When I was a youth pastor, it was really interesting. There were seasons when you have high highs, a lot of kids and really low lows at youth groups. Often when we had high highs, students from other youth groups would come and man, and even get bigger, better, and exciting. But then there were times when a big graduating class left and the next classes were smaller and it would be kind of, you know, not as exciting, not as enthusiastic. I remember talking to a student who was upset that some of her friends, some of their friends, when they were on a low thing, would go to other youth groups because they had bigger events more exciting things were happening. They'd leave and they'd go, and I remember talking to him, and, and I asked him this question. What is the purpose of church? To be entertained or to serve? He thought about it, and he got it. This kid got it. And he decided to take it as his responsibility to invite other people to our church, and to invite them to our little podunk Donkeys group, He served other students, even junior highers, when he was in senior high. He really did. Do you know what that kid is doing today? He's leading a larger church than I am right now and doing a much better job of pastoring. This person gets it. Parents want their kids to be served, to be happy, and to go where things are happening. We're making our kids master consumers. Master consumers. But if you can teach your kid to be a servant, serving others, I am telling you, they will be secure the rest of their life. That's how they're happy. Well, the last S, I hate to say, is tough. And we find it in verse 27. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Must use. This word is other versions, it's bond, servant, doulos. But slavery in the Bible is kind of interesting. It's not like slavery the way we imagine it. Slavery takes two forms. One, it's a slave born into a family and then basically if you are a slave and you have a kid, that slave becomes your owner's property. But then there's what's called an indentured servant. It'd be somebody who owes a big debt and they can't pay it back, so they say, hey, can I work for you? I'll work for you to pay off the debt. Sometimes, hey, I need a house, can I work for you if you give me a house on your farm? So indentured servanthood is really like, I owe, I'll pay, and I'll do it every time." I want to take you to where this, this word is very interesting. It's Exodus 21. It's the first time you really see it book of Genesis, and then Exodus. In the very front of the Bible. Exodus 21, 1-6. Talks about this indentured servant or being a bond servant. It's very descriptive. Starting in verse 1. These are the rules you shall set before him. So God's saying, Moses, I want you to talk to the Israelites. Here's the rules. For you. Begins in verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free, nothing, owing nothing, he'll be free. Six years of service, then he's free. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. So if he's a single guy, and he works six years, he leaves single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him, so he remains married. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be their masters, and he shall go all alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with them all, and he shall be like he shall be his slave forever. So if the slave loves the master, loves serving with the master, the go up to him and says, I'm yours for life. Takes his ear, takes a nice pick, jams in his ear on the side of the door, gives him an earring. He's a bondservant for life. He never leaves. That is the best description of Christianity I've ever heard. Jesus bought me out of sleep. Jesus is the best master who takes care of me every day. All of my need. Jesus is kind and Jesus is worth giving my life to. If that's not what a Christian means, then what is a Christian? Is that not what you want for your son or daughter? To be owned by Jesus? Or do you want them to be you know, have a house on the side of a lake where they have a great job and look, they're secure. You want them to be secure? Or do you want them to be, you know, like a, they, they, they get everything? They are satisfied. That's my beautiful daughter. Look how she can take pictures on Instagram, Instagram drinking wine at a restaurant. She's so beautiful. She has such a happy life. Or look at my son. I mean, he's, he's really significant. He's on three baseball teams travels across to Indiana, Illinois, and he, his batting average is over 320. Where do you want him to conform to the image of Christ? Grandeur or conformity? I was uh, given a great gift at the age of 23. <laughs> I was able to clearly hear from the lips of both my mom and my dad what they wanted from me. Well, it began where I really just wanted to please him, especially my dad. He was a salesman. I became a salesman. He went to the University of Dayton. I went to the University of Dayton. He got a sales job in Cleveland. I got a sales job in Cleveland working for Honeywell. He wore suits. I wore suits. He taught me how to play golf. I played golf with my friends for a long time. I just wanted to make him happy and be proud of me. I was my father's son. But then something strange, something wonderful happened to me. Jesus bought me on a highway in Mentor, Ohio, Highway 44. I gave my life to him at that moment, utterly and completely, and he changed me. At work, I changed too. I started disagreeing with the ethics of my Italian mobster boss, Frank Filippa. Can you say his name. He wore pinstripe suits at think you ring, and this guy was a shyster, but man he's rich. He knew how to get saved. But I would argue with him because he was ethically wrong, and he didn't like when I'd argue with him, and one day, I brought into my office a brochure for a place called Moody Bible Institute Cranston. My boss saw the brochure at my desk, and he called me into the office. He said, weeks, I need to talk to you. Come on in here. Then he looked at me and he sat me down across from his desk and he goes, are you planning on making a career here at Honeywell or are you going to go to that Bible school? What are you going to do? He smirked at Tommy and smirk. Smirk I said, I don't know. I don't know. Well then, he said, as he handed me a large cardboard box, I'll give you ten minutes to back up your office and resign. I also need to take your car keys because it's a company car. I'll drive you home. I packed my books, box books, put them in the box, signed papers to leave, got into the car, and he drove me home. We said nothing on the way home. We said nothing. As we drove up my driveway, my driveway was kind of steep, through some woods, went up. I'll never forget it. Surreal moment. We're driving up. He's driving me up in a company car, and at the end of my driveway was my dad sitting on a metal chair at the end of the driveway. He's wearing a white t shirt. My mom was cutting his hair with one of those electric razors. The hair clumps were falling on, dabbling on his white t shirt. And um, I got out of the car. I closed the door. Frank Felipelli sped away down the driveway. And there I stood with my box in hand. Wearing a suit, my tie was loosened, and now I was jobbing. I was jobless. What would my dad say? Was his son a disappointment? Who just got a degree from University of and paid all that money? Did his vision of grandeur for me disappear like a morning mist? I had no security, I was not satisfied, and I had no significance. I was a 23-year-old broke man with no job and a box. The first thing my dad did is smile. He smiled. My mom turned off the razor and she smiled. And then my dad said something I'll never forget. He looked at me and goes, Chris, this is great. Now your life really begins. And he said that because he understood something. He knew Jesus bought me and I was his. And he was happy about that. I wasn't a failure. I was a child of a living God. My question for you is, what do you want with your children? Grandeur? Or conformity? What do you want for your life? Grandeur? Or conformity? It's up to you to decide.